one of the points of 1984 is this is a modern version of Frankenstein. It's just that the monster is the state. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Tom Ricks. His new book, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, was just released, and I'm excited to welcome him to the table to discuss it. Tom is also a foreign policy columnist, writing each day for FP's Best Defense blog. He also covered the U.S. military for over two decades, working for The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. Also joining us in Washington today is Corey Shockey, a research fellow in the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And we have a new guest who I'm pleased to welcome again, FP's Middle East editor, David Kenner, who is calling in all the way from Beirut. Yeah, David. ER nerds, we are excited to be here again and welcome your feedback. You can email us anytime at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Um, So I recently finished Tom Rick's remarkable new book, Churchill and Orwell, and there are so many moments in the book that seem like a good jumping off point into modern politics. So I perhaps thought we'll start, as we talked a little bit last time, about 1984 returning to the bestseller status after Donald Trump's election, and also Trump rather famously putting a bust of Churchill back in the Oval Office. Um, So my first question is, what would these two men have made of our current political situation? Great question. Orwell's the easier one. Orwell would have despised Trump as a kind of fat, dumb, uneducated oligarch, of which there have been plenty of, of types in through world history. It's funny because when I look at Trump, what I think of is actually another great British writer, W.H. Auden, who wrote one of my favorite poems called August 1968. It's about the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and the Chicago police riot against demonstrators in Chicago the same month. I'll tell you it if you don't mind because it's pretty short. Please, 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 yes. It's called The Ogre Does What Ogres Can, Things Quite Impossible for Man. Across the subjugated plain, among its desperate and slain, the ogre stalks with hands on hips and drivel gushes from his lips. And every time I see Trump... I think of drivel gushing from his lips. There's also an Orwell aspect to this. One of the things Orwell has in 1984, which when Corey rereads, she's going to find a new appreciation for, (laughs) is Big Brother, the way the government is run, not only do they do away with history. Remember Winston Smith's job in in the book is to dispose of – facts that are no longer true because the government has decided they're not true. And at the end of his desk, he has the memory hole in which they're disposed. But another part of his job is dumbing down language. Uh, So they've done away, he explains to a friend, with uh, splendid and excellent. And now they have good, double good, and double plus good. Jesus. And that also reminds me of President Trump's extremely limited vocabulary he goes to the Wailing Wall and writes Amazing. I mean, Jesus wept. Um, so wait, oh, wait, wait. wait. Oh, I want wait. the Churchill piece of yeah, this, Yeah, though. the bust. The way, what, yeah. And Everybody's waving their arms. And... <laughs> we, we feel like we're neglecting right. Churchill. Let's not. Churchill. The Churchill bust. What would Churchill think of Churchill's bust being in Donald Trump's Oval Office? Churchill. So what I think Churchill would think is that, is that President Trump is living proof of Churchill's aphorisms aphorism about America doing the right thing after it exhausts all other possibilities. Wow. I, think, I think Churchill, Churchill would see America 
as somewhat childish, and we occasionally stumble and elect a childish president, and that's what we've done here. I think Church would also appreciate how robust the American government is. Basically, we've had a decapitation strike that we executed ourselves. <laughs> we no longer have a working presidency. Uh, there's nobody at home mentally running the U.S. government. And guess what? It runs pretty well by itself. Um, probably better than if you had a – if President Trump were competent, he'd be much more dangerous. But, you know, you've got Corey's old friend Jim Mattis running the Pentagon of Defense Policy, probably with Tory, Tory, Corey telling him what to do. Um, Corey only wishes she had such sweeping powers. you got, you know, Tillerson who seems mildly competent sometimes. you got H.R. McMaster who may be losing his soul but is – Otherwise, probably doing a good job of, of, as he sees it, I think under crushing pressure, um, defending the president. I think he should be defending the country, but doing a difficult job and I think staying in it because he doesn't want Bannon to appoint some Yahoo to the position. So he's sort of giving up of himself. So I think Churchill would look at all that and say, you know, the Americans are kind of amusing sometimes. Um, Churchill was an expert on the Civil War. And actually wrote a great essay, a uh, counterfactual, um, about the South winning the war. And he does it in a very clever way. It's an essay about what if the South had not won the war, written as if the South had won it. Huh. And he's trying to figure out what, what it would be like um, that he published early, early in his life. When he came to America, he loved to study Civil War battlefields. Uh, so I think he would see this as all part of this great barbaric yop of America. I absolutely agree with that description, but there are a couple of um, things about Churchill that always have bothered me. So he writes in the history of the English-speaking peoples that basically nothing interesting happens in America between the end of the Civil War and the start of the 20th century. And, and that's always struck me because our fundamental sense of ourselves, the founding mythology of us as a country is about how you deal with putting the country back together after the Civil War, right? The mythology of westward expansion and what it says. And that Churchill misses that completely, I think, is the result of the fact that it doesn't fit his narrative. It is the departure from Anglo-America. It's not a continuation of it. And the second thing related to the first is how deeply invested Churchill is in the storyline of the special relationship. Because as you point out so nicely in the book, his winning strategy for World War II is cajoling the United States into the fight because he needs the resourcing of our economy and of our soldiery. And Franklin Roosevelt causes him to actually pay a very high price for it in the Atlantic Charter and in other ways that will chip away at the British Empire. I agree with everything you said, but his history of English-speaking peoples is a bad, bad book. I agree. It's bad because it's inaccurate in starters, as you described It's inaccurate. It's, it's sloppy, racist. It's sloppy, he, and he probably didn't write it. Uh, he's senile and stroke-ridden when the, when the book is being put together. I didn't realize he that. He has teams of writers writing for him. Uh, writing don't, some don't some, we all dream summary. of this? <laughs> yeah. he, well, he did the same thing with his World War II memoirs, but then he was at the height of his powers. Uh, he was 
overseeing the whole thing. And it was like he was running a think tank that was producing his memoirs and putting his imprint on them. Uh, history of the English-speaking peoples is simply to, to – he needs to make some money. He cranks out this this stuff and it's sort of a comic book version of uh. British history – and it's even worse on American history. It's terrible on well, American history, I, mean, I agree. Back to the original question. What is Donald Trump trying to evoke by putting the bust of Churchill in the Oval Office? I mean, what does he think he is? Okay, it's sweet you think there's a theory undergirding Just play along with it's it. It's very endearing, Sharon. Um, one of the great things about Churchill and Orwell is that they're both great readers. I love how in the middle of World War II, Churchill en route to his summit rereads uh, some of Trollope. Uh, uh, how he, he's recovering from pneumonia and he has somebody read Pride and Prejudice to him. One thing fundamentally that Donald Trump is not is a reader. It does bother me. This is probably the first president I think we've ever had who has not read a play by Shakespeare, I'm pretty sure. George mm-hmm. W. Bush read a – I mean no, no offense. To, he read you plays by Shakespeare. You had a fantastic line in your interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in which you pointed out that President Trump is a terrific listener like most barely literate people. Yeah, and I think what he thinks of Churchill is kind of what he's picked up in the ether from movies – and what is that? I mean, I, let's just... It, it's the classic sort of yeah. bulldog Churchill image. Okay. You know, Richard Burton getting up there with cotton in his cheeks, growling, we will fight them on the beaches. It's the bulldog. It's never, never, never give up. It's the British... It's the Churchill of mythology. So let's take then back to the... Tri- we know that Trump is not a big reader or any reader, um, but the Steve Bannon, the Stephen Millers, what... In terms of, do you think they read Orwell and take something out of it or draw their own themes out of it, or they just reject that sort of intellectual? Legacy? I think they're on the other side of the divide. I think Bannon really? reads Lenin. Really? Yeah, I think. Can I read you expand on that? After I read somewhere that Bannon is a big yeah, fan. Yeah, they would of read 1984 as a campaign plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's something so Trumpian is when he says one thing one week and another thing the next week. That's exactly what Big Brother says is the role of government. One of the points of 1984 is if the government says 2 plus 2 is 5, you have to not only agree, but you have to believe it. And the tragedy of 1984 is that ultimately Winston does believe it. And he he learns. Uh, Read it. This is a modern version of Frankenstein. It's just that the monster is the state. Yeah, it's a great parallel. I've never heard that parallel made. It's terrific. It's a horror story. You know, um, David, please. If I may quickly, um, I think one thing, one parallel people could legitimately draw between Trump and Churchill is the imperialism, which I don't think we talk much about Churchill these days as sort of an avid supporter of imperialism. Um, but but it does come out in your book that he's a supporter of the British Empire, that, that it was sort of foundational to his politics. Absolutely. And I, I wonder if you see a comparison between Trump saying, take the oil, and, and this very um, extractionist sense of U.S. foreign policy, that it really is for profit, in Churchill's conception of the British Empire. It's a good question, but I think it gives Trump too much credit. Uh, Trump, I, Trump is much more like the mafia than I think he is like the British Empire. Um, mm-hmm. the way, when he says – the way he talks about Comey evokes for me um, the dumb Corleone brother. This is sort of half Fredo you know, <laughs> and half um, the James Kahn uh, character, Sonny. Mm-hmm. And I 
also think, like, I, I love the question, David. I also am not sure it accurately captures Churchill's sense of empire, which, I mean, it, the civilizing mission. He thought Indians should be grateful to be British subjects. He Right? Like, so his mm-hmm. vision of the empire wasn't commercial and extractive. It was lifting others up to the standard of, of British enlightenment and that they should all be grateful. Sure. That's a really good point, Corey. I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. It was um, a cultural mission, right, that the West was on. Yeah. And that's why it's such a fundamental friction with FDR, because it's the vision of what comes after the war that they cannot find agreement on. And people have accused Trump of many things, but he has not been accused of being on a cultural mission. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or the ability to plan several moves ahead of yeah. where this is going. I mean, FDR actually has a conversation conversation with Stalin at Yalta. So with Churchill present, he has a conversation with Stalin about Indian independence from the British Empire and suggesting maybe the Soviet Union's a role model for India's future. Churchill would have dropped over dead if he knew that kind of betrayal was coming so easily to Franklin Roosevelt. It's going back to animal stories. Uh, Churchill's conclusion at the Tehran conference. I don't know it. Is... The little British donkey knows the way, but the American eagle and the Russian bear won't listen. Ah, yeah, that's that's the proper level of arrogance for how Churchill thinks about British power. You have this real sense of sort of foreboding in the book, and you have this um, sentence, the 1930s were horrible in many ways. There was a growing sense among many people that a new dark age was at hand. And certainly that's what some people see in the current era. And then sort of the alternate line is, no, this is just a blip. Where I mean, do you see parallels in the current world and what's going on to what you saw when researching this for the 1930s? I do. I have a lot of foreboding. I'm really struck especially by how little support young Americans seem to have nowadays for free speech. I see it as an absolute necessity and fundamental to how the society works that we believe in the things that Orwell wrote about, freedom of conscience, freedom to think, freedom to associate with others, freedom to express oneself, freedom to meet publicly. And when I see people on the right and the left say, no, the other side has to shut up, we will use violence to stop political speech, they don't understand that America is built on letting, protecting even the most repugnant the Nazi, the racist. Um, our great libel laws are built on protecting li- those, those terrible publications. Fred Friendly had a book on this called Minnesota Rag about how the best libel law comes out of this terribly anti-union racist uh, Minnesota newspaper enjoying the protections of the First Amendment. And I, I worry that people don't appreciate that. I do have a real sense of foreboding nowadays. I'm really glad I live off the coast of the United States on an island in Maine that considers itself semi-independent. For example, the people on my island did not believe that probation applied to the island, (laughs) Um, partly because it was easy enough to drive your lobster boat over to Nova Scotia, load up the whiskey bottles, and then drop them um, in, in the lobster traps and leave them down there until you needed them. And just <laughs> it sounds like a marvelous place. <laughs> it, it is. It, I, I love living there. Um, so the real foreboding I have is that internationally, the kind of 
semi sort of disturbance, uneasiness, disequilibrium feels to me like the 1930s. Domestically, I worry that this country feels a lot like the 1850s to me in the 10 years to the run-up to the Civil War. In fact, I've been reading a lot about Kansas, um, about political violence in the 1850s, and a lot of that feels like today. One and of the, the th- incapacity of the existing governance system to address and defang those kinds of resentments. Yeah, so that the basic problems in American society were not addressed in the 1850s. In fact, it, there was a gag rule. That you couldn't discuss slavery in the U.S. Congress, I think, from about 1842 until about 1855 or so. It was You were not allowed to. It was, it was banned. And that's one reason that the Supreme Court steps in with the Dred Scott decision and the fugitive slave uh, approvals, I think, is they um, were trying to get the U.S. government off the dime. So one of the things I do when I'm knocking around uh, talking to military officers is informally, casually, and off the record by name with them, I say, what do you think of the chances of civil war in this country occurring again within the next 10 years using the definition of civil war as at least a 1,000 political, at least a 1,000 deaths a year caused by politics? And I would say right now the average guess is about 55%. Mm. The interesting thing is a couple of black people have commented to me, well, under that, uh, under that uh, metric, I could argue that we're, we have been in civil war for many years, more than a thousand black men being killed annually by police or in other acts uh, that may be political or rep- purposely repressive in nature. Wow, we are a vi- very violent country. We resort to violence much more easily than a lot of other countries do. And I speak as somebody who grew up partly in Afghanistan. Um, you grew up in Afghanistan? Partly. Why? Well, I was a member of the Afghan ski patrol, and it seemed like a good thing to stick around. <laughs> um, Afghans, actually, even though a lot of them carry weapons— um, I think I've seen more violence on the streets of America than I ever saw on the streets of Afghanistan when I lived there. Well, that's a thought to take with us. Um, I do think people who worry about gun violence in America think an awful lot about the guns and much too little about the violence that is inherent in a, in the aggressiveness of American society. Well, I mean, along with sort of the foreboding in the book is the idea is this, you know, sort of great admiration you have for Churchill and Orwell of these two figures who really warned about the rise of authoritarianism. Do we have equivalent figures today among politicians or writers? Well, this is one reason I end the book by talking about Martha Luther King. I think the two great redeeming events in American history were the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. And so I loved how King uses this basic approach that both Churchill and Orwell had of observing the situation, determining the facts, and then applying your existing considered principles to the situation. But having principles that you steer by, um, I don't see as much of that these days. The characteristics of people who would be like that would be politicians who are willing to break with their own side, call out their own side, Occasionally, you see John McCain and uh, his mini-me, Lindsey Graham, uh, 
get into this, but they never seem to take a full dive into it. They kind of pull Why back. not? I think because they're waiting for other people to join them to but, back like, up. But who else? <laughs> well, Susan Collins, for example, senator from Maine. I've been disappointed in how quiet she has been. One of the only real clarion voices has been Ben Sass from Nebraska. Yeah, I've been very imp- Is that how you pronounce his name, Sass? I've been very impressed by him who's willing to speak out and has a freshness in his voice. So that's the first thing I would look for. And a principled voice yeah. as well. These are the rules that uh, that should govern me and govern us all. Rule of law, a sense of American history, and especially a sense of the American Constitution. Fighting in America, political sort of tug and war doesn't bother me. The founding fathers, in their wisdom, gave us a purposely adversarial system in which you have contending powers – the three branches of government contending with each other, none of them preeminent, because they were worried by the experience of the English Civil War and did not want to repeat it. So the contention doesn't worry me. An appreciation of contention is fundamental to America. That's great. But not knowing the Constitution, as Trump appears not to, and Trump's frustration when he bangs into the law is, boy, I really need to change. It's They're going to change the system and bad judges. Uh, he He's un-American in his, his lack of appreciation for this system. It's a pretty good system. It's worked pretty well for a couple hundred years just because an ignorant real estate developer uh, doesn't like it doesn't mean it should change. Actually, it works precisely because it wouldn't change under those circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. The, the irony of Trump, the system works. Well, that's – so then we have those two things. We have – the rise of a president who many people feel is authoritarian, but we also have the institutions carrying on. So which is it? Is it a blip in history or are we at the start of some massive slide? I think we're at the start of a massive slide because I think Trump is uh, more a manifestation than a cause. There is a deep problem in this country and I I think Trump voters uh, are saying something. They're not just a bunch of racist morons. These are people who are saying, hey, this system isn't working for us anymore. We are economically stagnant and we have lost our privileged place in American society and are mocked for complaining about it. Um, speaking especially of sort of older white men without decent educations. They have been knocked off a pedestal and they feel America's mocking them for it and they're not making any money and, and there's no prospects of them making money. The coal industry is not coming back. They don't have the education to work in the information industry and they never will. And they're subject to a system in which inequality is increasing and in which the political system seems to be rigged so that no matter whether a Trump wins or a Hillary Clinton wins, Goldman Sachs wins. This is the truest thing that Bernie Sanders said was – Congress doesn't regulate Wall Street. Wall Street regulates Congress. And I think this has screwed the Democratic Party because under our system of campaign finance, you have to kowtow to Wall Street, to major financial institutions, and to major corporations in order to survive politically. But that means you sell out your natural constituency, the working people of America. So that's interesting. So in the book, you talk about how Orwell looked – to the working class as sort of the hope against the authoritarian state, although you also say he didn't really understand the working class that well and didn't have that much contact. It was Thomas Pynchon's great observation that Winston keeps on talking about how great the proles are, but Winston doesn't seem to know any proles. <laughs> right. So do you hear the that – I mean a certain class of people has helped the rise of Trump. I mean, was Orwell wrong? Was he right? Where, where does the working class fit into all of this? 
in the battle against authoritarianism. The only bright light I see in Trump's election is a very clear signal has been sent to American elites is that you can't keep on screwing the middle class and the working class and expect to get away with it for much longer. And until the Democratic Party gets that message, it's not going to have traction. People like Chuck Schumer are totally designed against this. Schumer represents New York and represents Wall Street. And he is the Senate Senate minority leader. Until you get different voices who are not beholden to a campaign finance system like we have now, the Democratic Party is going to be in the ditch. Two points I would add to it, to Tom's terrific analysis. The first is that it is not just older white men with bad educations who are Trump supporters. I absolutely agree with you that too much of the media commentary treats them all like they're people out, you know, demanding Civil War statues remain. Forty percent of Hispanics voted for Donald Trump. A majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. And and my own sense is that the economic security, your point about the cultural dislocation, right? As soon as women and minorities get more and more opportunities, um, the, the most aggrieved are certainly aging white men of poor educations because they used to be have preferential access that they no longer have. Um, but but that's not the entirety of the of the support base. And there's the cultural component. There's also the economic component. America's leading politicians have been talking such economic nonsense for so long um, and in a way so unsympathetic to the small bore anxieties of Americans that I I think that's why you get it. Trump dials into the sense of grievance, even though he doesn't have a sense of solution. I'm a lot more optimistic than you are, though, Tom, because I have the sense that people are growing exhausted with the tumult of it. Trump has rightly characterized the problem. It, he does not appear to have solutions to it. And there is so much political space opening up for people who take the message, as you suggest, Sharon, and then find solutions to it, which he hasn't done. What she said. Um, Excellent. <laughs> if, if I were smarter, I would have said that. Uh, I, I, I think you're right in your analysis of why the sort of Trump train is losing steam. One other thing I would add is from where I live in Maine, you kind of look around. I have a lot of neighbors who voted for Trump and still hate Hillary and would never vote for her. Yet what they're seeing right now is cuts are coming through to social programs that the state administers or supports because the state expects it won't be supported in the federal budget. So they want to, they're saying we're going to have to cut back on this. So, for example, in the little assisted living facility for my island that's across the street from our house, you know, old Mrs. Eaton is told the uh, Meals on Wheels lunch is now going to cost eight bucks rather than six bucks, and she says, "Well, I can't afford that." And so people are, you know, well, look, we'll pay for it for you, but and then she says, "No, I don't take charity because she's a Mainer." And you get a lot of this back back and forth in Maine. The people who need help most are often the people who won't ask for it, too proud. And what I'm hearing my neighbors say is, wait a second, we voted to stick it to the immigrants and the smug liberals, not to poor old Mrs. Eaton. And so those social cuts um, are going to be noticed and are really going to be felt and I think deeply resented. 
Yeah, the budget that the administration just announced leaves entitlements spending intact, which means the entirety of any reductions that are coming through have to come through in discretionary programs. They're upping defense spending. The only place, two places there are give is debt, which this piles up $4.6 billion, trillion dollars worth of debt in a five-year time frame. Um, and second, cuts to discretionary social programs. And, and that is going to hit hardest a lot of the people who are counting on this administration to create positive change for them. Tom, well, um, do you mind if I step in for a second? Please. Um, yes, David. Uh, sure. Um, I, I just wanted to bring this back to one of the my favorite themes that I found in your book, which is like th this was a story of how two men who felt a connection to the polar opposites of British economic and social strata. I mean, Churchill Nicely to the aristocracy. You're sad. No, I said nicely said, David. I'm envious. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a magazine editor, so every once in a while I come up with a, a good phrase. Um, anyway, so I mean, Churchill felt this connection to the aristocracy and traditional institutions, and Orwell felt this connection to the working poor, and they nevertheless they arrived at this similar conclusion that their preferred first that their preferred team sort of had reached fatally incorrect conclusions on the key issues of the day. And secondly, that the correct solution was that liberal democracy and defense of individual rights had to be defended by all means at their disposal. And I, I guess when I'm trying to interpret that for the modern day, what, what I'm looking for is, is this connection between left and right over a shared set of values and, and a shared way forward. Um, that, that's separate from either sort of the Hillary Clinton, Goldman Sachs wing of the Democratic Party or the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party. And, and I wondered if, if you had any sense that 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 was occurring, this synthesis between um, these disparate political views, um, if you see it anywhere. I don't see it. I wish I saw more of it. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of it. I'll tell you where I think it might come from. The U.S. Constitution and a general belief in the rule of law. I say this because I think the Constitution is not just a great piece of sort of government architecture. I think it's the founding strategic document of this country and it inherent in it is a strategic approach to how to live as a people. And what I would like to see is a constitutionalist rule of law party emerge which as even as I say it, I worry a bit, sounds like the old uh, East Coast Federalist that uh, Jackson came to hate so much and has basically began a 150-year charge against. And there is a lot of Jackson in the Trumpist wing of the party. Um, taking this back around to Churchill and Orwell for a moment, one of the things you mentioned is the two never met, although they were aware, read each other's work. At one point, Orwell reviews Churchill's work. What would have been the relationship like had they met? Where would they have agreed? The writing is so very different. You talk a lot about Orwell's style of writing, which is so very different than Churchill. I think Churchill would have loved to meet Orwell, but Orwell was an introvert uh, and, a, and a bit of a crank. And he becomes more so as his health declines and as he retreats to the Inner Hebrides, you know, at the, at the end of a nearly trackless island, windswept off the coast of Scotland. 
I puzzled over this a lot. And as an exercise, when I was writing the book, I actually wrote a short little like two-page play called Churchill and Orwell Meet in Heaven. And um, I was going to put it at the end of the book. And I asked my editor. He said, I really liked it. And I said, but should I have it at the end of the book? And he said, honestly, no. You don't want to sort of veer off into fiction. He said, it's the same reason he said, you don't want to have too provocative a title because the reviewers have spent all their time fighting with your title. Um, <laughs> you know, if you end in fiction, the first question immediately is going to be, you know, oh, no, is this another guy like that biographer of Teddy Roosevelt who, who <laughs> sort of had fictional episodes in it? But it was a good intellectual exercise for me. What I have them talk about is um, America a little bit and why they never met. And Orwell says, Churchill says, I would have loved to meet you. And Orwell says, no, you were so busy in World War II, I would just would have been another beggar te- you know, on the road tugging at your, at your cape. Um, but I think they would have enjoyed each other enormously. And I actually end it with um, Churchill saying, by the way, have you met Martin Luther King? Gandhi introduced us. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us here this week. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Tom Rick's book because it's a great read. And it is a great and read. And really, it, it gets you thinking so many ways about what's going on now. So thank you again. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Thanks for Please doing Please join this. us next time on the ER. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.